so good to be back here at Calvary Baptist. Uh, I think somebody just reminded me this morning, last time I was here was in 2016, which is much too long ago. And uh, if I cough a little bit up here and if I drink a lot of water, please forgive me. Uh, I'm here for a nine-week furlough. Arrived back and two days later I promptly uh, got a sinus infection, which knocked me out for two weeks. So I may have to come back, come back again, um, but uh, I did do a COVID test, so don't worry about that. It's not COVID. I think that's the 30th time that I've actually had my brains reamed out by the little sticks. Um, uh, between all the travel and between in and out of hospitals with Kelly, I did have to do a lot of those tests, and, and uh, you never quite get used to those, do you? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do want to share this morning, but I want to preface it by saying that have you ever recalled a sermon, do you remember a sermon that you heard years back that will never leave your mind? It will be etched in your memory forever. I'm not trying to set this up to be that kind of sermon for you. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm going back to a time in our life when Kelly and I, this was probably early 90s, we heard a sermon by our home pastor up in Rockford. And he was speaking uh, a series of sermons through the book of James. And he was at the very beginning, first chapter of James. And there was a, a door up on the stage. And we didn't know why that door was standing up there, freestanding on the stage. And he began to read the verses in James. And he said, count it all joy, brothers, when you come across diverse trials and temptations. And he said, you know... To count it all joy, to consider it joy, when you run across basically pain and suffering, it's like looking at that door and waiting for your college kid to come through that door after they've been gone for a whole semester. It's opening that door, and you see that person come through, and you hold your arms open wide to welcome and consider with pure joy the onslaught of what's coming through that door. Except instead of being your college kid, it's trials and pain and tribulation. Who does that? Who, who welcomes with arms open wide trials and pain and hardship? And little did we know that that would stick with us for a lifetime. I will never forget that sermon. But day in, day out, Kelly and I would walk through life and we would experience that kind of joy. I want to talk a little bit about that, but uh, let me share just a little bit of our story. Uh, it began as two MKs. I grew up in Brazil in the large city and Kelly grew up in Venezuela and Mexico and one year in Bolivia. And her folks worked with Indians and they did a lot of translation work, so two very different angles of missions as we look at it. And we finally met in Grand Rapids. She was in college and I was in seminary. And yes, that skinny guy is me with the half mullet there. Um, and Kelly was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever met in my life. And little did we know that how much we had in common. And God called us to the mission field. We arrived in Brazil in 1994 after he had called us together and we began working in different ministries in Brazil in the city of Recife we pronounce it Recife like an H so we worked with uh, church planting that was our original intent 
And we accumulated with that uh, the camp directorship at Camp Paradise, uh, leadership training, and then a little bit later in 2009, Good Soil Ministries in Brazil. And we were trucking along full steam. Uh, every time we came and reported here, we had a lot of new things that we wanted to share. Uh, but God uh, decided to kind of put the brakes on that in 2019. And in 2019, we had a new direction. After 25 years of ministry in Brazil, God began to redirect us in, the, in order to use our skills and use the experience that we had to be able to lead other missionaries in another region of the world. So CCAM was the Caribbean, Central America, and Mexico, and we were to uh, oversee and administrate the missionaries in, in that whole region for ABWE. And we came back to the U.S. in July, I believe, in 2019, and we began to prepare for that. We knew that we were going to have to return to Brazil. We are going to be down there for eight more months uh, for 2020, and we were going to prepare, uh, sell our home, and transition out of our ministries there. And in the meantime, we were contacting all of our missionaries in 2019, uh, who we would be administering. And we, we made a trip down to Nicaragua, and we met a lot of those missionaries. And we were very excited about this new prospect in life. We've always been very involved in training, in leadership training. And this just followed suit with being able to use the experience of ministry and life and be able to work with missionaries uh, in, this, in this region. Well, in 2019, we had a surprise uh, in December. And during uh, that month, Kelly was diagnosed with AML and promptly ended up in the hospital in Grand Rapids. This was two weeks before we were supposed to travel back to Brazil. And so all the best laid plans, mice and men, you know, just kind of went out the window. And we're sitting in the hospital, and our very first stint in the hospital was 54 days. And uh, I began wearing a mask because of Kelly's issue. And this was prior to COVID. Remember COVID hit in March of 2020? So I was wearing a mask in churches and stuff. Uh, and then I'd go back to the hospital and stay with Kelly. At one point, I could not leave the hospital anymore, and I was with her. And then everybody joined me in wearing masks in March. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a very difficult time. I can finally talk about it without shedding a lot of tears up here. Uh, it's been 21 months now. And uh, probably the most difficult time of my life. It was a time that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. It was 14 months of the cancer journey. But neither would I want to repeat that for anything in the world. And uh, Kelly was just an amazing trooper through all of this. Um, she's beautiful even when she was bald. And uh, we worked through this a long time, but we, we needed something to sink our teeth into. We needed something that we could um, uh, stand firmly upon. And that's, that's when we began to think of choosing joy. Well, throughout all this time, we had a lot of family experience, too. Our kids were coming in and out of the hospital. And on Kelly's bucket list was, I would really like, if God takes me, I would really like to be uh, a part of Danny's wedding. Danielle is our youngest. So this was Danny's wedding down in Florida. And uh, from left to right, that's Trevor and my daughter, Trisha, and their two boys. 
and they are full of energy. Trust me, they are little boys. And Trish is now expecting number three. We're hoping for a little girl. Um, and then Kelly and I in the middle there with Danielle and Will at their wedding, and they've been married now for a little over a year, uh, almost two years. And then uh, Kate and Alex, my son Alex is our oldest, and they have a little baby girl. Kate was actually expecting during the, the wedding there. So I now have three uh, baby grandchildren. I know I look like I'm in my 30s. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, we got married when we were 10. Um, so uh, this, was, this was a joy. I mean, this, this was a month and a half before Kelly passed away. And so to see her energy and be able to do all this, and it was right after that that she entered the hospital at Moffitt Cancer Center in, in Tampa and had to do a, a clinical trial there and didn't go well. And Kelly actually didn't pass away of leukemia. She passed away in February of uh, two different infections that she got in the hospital. So, that's just a short version of 14 months of a lot of journeying through joy. Like I said, we really needed a, we needed a theme to kind of carry us through this. Uh, we had to talk to a lot of people. And early on, we decided, you know, uh, we're really laying our hearts out on a platter, but we, we need to share with people in an open forum so that people aren't expecting us to answer every single individual message that, the, that they were sending to us. And we chose a Facebook page. And it was a page called Care for Kelly. Many of you were on that page and saw and read through uh, what was written during that period of time. And uh, right away at the beginning of Journey, we, we chose the theme of Choose Joy. And uh, we didn't come upon that lightly. We thought about that sermon from years ago that we had heard. We talked about uh, the trials. But we also began to uh, journey through Scripture, not through the, just the Psalms. But we went all the way back to Nehemiah. And uh, if you open Nehemiah chapter 8, I'd like to just share a verse there that um, became very important to us. Now, I already got one funny look because of my Bible. Um, yes, this is duct tape on my Bible. So <laughs> what happened is I bought one of those beautiful, soft-bound, faux pas leather Bibles, you know, that's, I mean, it feels like silk to the touch, and it just doesn't hold up under tropical weather. And so it just, I mean, it just fell apart. And every time I held my Bible, it looked like somebody had polished my hand black. And so I covered it in duct tape, and I love it. And, and please, don't think, oh, the poor missionary, we need to buy a Bible for him. If you do that, I will be mad at you. I have way too much invested in this Bible. So <laughs> I am perfectly fine with my duct-taped Bible. So Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, let me just tell you, leading up to this, you know, the wall has been built, and now um, they're inside the walls, and they're within safety. And Ezra, the, the priest, is going to get up, and he's going to read from the book of the law. And it says back at, towards the end of chapter 7 that the whole assembly together was 42,360 people. So you've got 42,000 plus people within the walls of Jerusalem, and now they're getting ready to read the law. They want to put emphasis on the reading of the law. So they built this platform. And Ezra gets up there, and he's got six scribes on one side, uh, uh, priests and scribes, 
and seven on the other side. And there's another, oh my, uh, I think there was probably another 13 that were scattered around the people. And they were giving meaning to the reading of the law. And it says they got up and they read the law. They gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. Chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1. So 42,360 people gathered as one. And they're in this large square near the water gate. They have this raised platform. Ezra is standing up there and reading the law. And they read through the law all day long. And the response of the people was grief. I don't know if the grief is because they were grieving over their sin after they listened to the law, or they they had some kind of happy grief because uh, they were finally protected and now they're under the protection of the law. But theirs was grief. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests and the scribes scattered around with one message. And they said in verse 10... Then he who has nothing ready for this day is... uh, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Well, Kelly and I learned early on that we needed a source of strength. And the best source of strength, at least according to Nehemiah and according to some of the psalmists and according to Peter, is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But before we could even begin to describe that to people and talk about the journey that we were going through, we really needed to define the word joy. We really need to sink our teeth into what this word actually means. How would you define it? How do I define joy? How can that be my source of strength? Joy is not merely happiness. It's it's not giddiness. Joy is something much deeper than that. So I didn't go looking in theology books, and I didn't find other sources. We began to experientially define joy ourselves, and this was the definition that both Kelly and I came up with for what we were experiencing in life. Joy is a quiet satisfaction in God's sovereign will. You can use a lot of synonyms. Maybe you want to use contentment or a consolation of the spirit or make up your own word. It's a settledness. But joy is a quiet satisfaction in God's sovereign will. It's something that comes from right here. It's knowing that God is totally in control. He is still on his throne. And we are content to just bask in that and sit in that. And we began some attempts at writing about joy back in February, March, April of 2020. And we, it just seemed like there was some, a part missing here. We needed to share something else that would help people understand what that journey looks like as you're choosing joy on a daily basis. How in the world do you even choose joy? And uh, as we were looking at joy, we had to ask how it would be best understood. So, why joy? 
Well, we needed a source of strength, but we also knew that there was a source of joy that was even greater. There was an example of somebody that had experienced joy through trial that was much bigger than our own. So if you'd open to Hebrews 12, verse 2. I'm not going to have you jumping back and forth, but these are two portions of Scripture that are, are primary here. Hebrews 12, 2. And as soon as the word uh, jumps out, highlight it or do something with that because this is stark. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, remember Hebrews 11 talks about all the, the heroes of the faith. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the author and founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, who for that quiet satisfaction, that understanding that God's, God the Father's will would be done, I can be settled in this. I am good to go. I have hope. And as we looked at that, we began to uh, see that joy was not something that was just a state of mind. Joy wasn't just an attitude that we should have. In fact, joy has its own verb, rejoice. How do you do joy? You can be joyful, but how do you practice joy? You can rejoice, but what does that look like? And we began to see early on that there were two foundational pillars. There were two uh, stones that kind of held up what joy looked like for us. And you can't have just one and you can't have just the other, but the first one that we saw was gratitude. Gratitude is the cardinal virtue of Christianity. You show me somebody that is ungrateful, that is never grateful for anything, I'll show you somebody that doesn't fear God. You can't be a true Christian and be an ingrate. Gratitude must permeate your lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not just when things go your way, and not just when things are happy, but with a joyful spirit in trial and tribulation, count it all joy when you face diverse trials in all situations. And so Kelly and I began to practice gratitude. And the easiest way to practice that is verbally, of course. And uh, if any of you knew Kelly, she was a walker. Oh my, she could walk your socks off. Uh, I couldn't keep up with her. Uh, I would do like 16 mile uh, walks or 16 minute walks for a mile and she'd do 13 and a half and she just would be tickled with that because she beat me. <laughs> she walked. And even when she was in the hospital, even when her blood counts were way low, we found out that in our little unit there at Spectrum, uh, it was 13 laps around to be able to complete one mile. 
And guess what? Callie was there. She had these little beads. She had this thing with beads with 13 beads on it. And she'd pull them. It looked like rosaries. You know, I said, Kelly, put that thing away. And, and as she's walking, she's pulling each one, you know, and count 13 off. And there were days that when she was sick, she would walk three miles. But guess what we did when we walked? Well, if we encountered people, we talked with them, but we were grateful. We prayed. I had the custom of praying with my wife, but never like during that year. That was special. You know, we can have our token five, ten minutes of prayer with our wives and you do family devotions and everything. And then in 2019, 2020, Kelly and I were praying for an hour at a time. And it became the norm. And as we walked, we're just we're praising God and thanking God for everything he gave us. And what he has done in life. And gratitude must be a part of our breath of life. It is a part of our joy. It is foundational to having joy and choosing joy. You must be grateful. But there's a big problem with gratitude. You can get a serious case of inward eyeballitis. It's a serious case of being very self-focused and thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. And thank you, Lord, for providing for me. And thank you, Lord. And we began to have to refocus that. And one of the ways that we were able to do that was through the second pillar, this essential, called compassion. And compassion must be such a part of our daily lives. It's not called the cardinal virtue of Christianity. But my goodness, isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't that his main focus? Is having compassion upon the flocks out there. And he did that by way of example for us so that we would have compassion on other people. It's a way of taking your inward gratitude and focusing it outward. It's taking what's inside of you and spreading it abroad. And having compassion on people. And, and Kelly and I were looking at each other and we're sitting in the hospital. How, how do we do that here? You know? Well, I was in and out of the hospital sometimes. I, I spent over 100 days in 2020 in the hospital with Kelly. She was there longer than me because of COVID. When I couldn't be in there at times with her. And, and for me, so when we started uh, grasping this and understanding it, it just meant helping people wherever I could. Um, I looked up compassion in the dictionary, and, and I wasn't very satisfied with the definition that I found there. Listen to it. Sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. So it's like, hmm, I'm really sorry you're going through that. And then you turn your back. There's no action here. It's just kind of a, a pity. And they use the word sympathy instead of empathy. Here's a much better definition, and a little shorter and a lot easier to remember. To suffer together. To suffer together. To have empathy with somebody that would move you to act for that person. Yes, it's, it's the Samaritan. To move you to engage in the life of that person. It doesn't mean you have to talk. Sometimes I don't want to hear words. 
There were times through the journey that I just I couldn't stand any more counsel or, or words of encouragement from people. I just wanted them to sit with me. And as we're going through that, there were people that began to engage with us, and we learned great lessons on engagement and what it meant to suffer together with other people. For me, it was a little bit easier because I could step in and out of the hospital whenever I wanted to. And so I... Uh, boy, I'd, I'd help elderly from our church. And when the dams at Edmore um, collapsed, guess where I was at? I was digging out basements in Edmore and Midland and other towns. And, and it, was, it was just a matter of suffering with people and, and engaging in their story and working with them and suffering together. And if you want to have empathy in the midst of that, let me suggest, and let me just give you a helpful hint. If you ever want to start a statement of empathy and speak out to somebody, never start the statement with the two words, at least. Oh, you, you lost your child. At least you have two more. You get it. It is standing in the gap with people. It's engaging your mind and your heart and, and your tears with them. And it's suffering together. It's having compassion. Well, how in the world would Kelly do that in the hospital? Oh, my. In the midst of her pain, in the midst of fevering at times at 103 and 104 is when it spiked at its worst. Her room was Grand Central Station. And she wasn't just seeking help from all the nurses and people that came through her door. We had a lot of visitors that came through there. She was engaging in life. I tend to call Kelly a giant of small stature because her influence through this journey and her influence through dread death was probably 10 times greater than through her whole life of ministry in Brazil. It was amazing to watch. She had me set up Christmas tree lights in the room, you know, to make it uh, uh, attractive to people coming in. And then she said, Dan, I, I want a bunch of pictures printed. I want pictures of family. I want pictures of friends. I want pictures of ministry. I want pictures of churches. Calvary Baptist Church, the name was right up there with other churches that support us. And, and we began to put up churches. And in, in between each of these pictures, we put up a verse in print. Every single open space in that room. By the way, the lights were, we weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> they came and told us later, we said, that's okay, you can keep them. Um, we, every single wall space that there was, and the doors, and the bathroom door, all had pictures and verses, pictures and verses, pictures and verses. And you know what people would do? They'd come into the room, whether it was visitors, or whether it was people that were uh, office personnel, and then they'd ask about that picture. And before going to the next picture, they had to read that verse. We had over 40 verses up there, by the way. And then they, they would ask questions. And Kelly would spend the day, while she's trying to recover from the last procedure, talking with people and sharing her faith with people. Two months after Kelly passed away, I'm sitting in Rockford, Michigan, and within a week, I got two giant cards. You know those cards, homemade cards people make? This big? 
from hospitals. I got one from Spectrum in Grand Rapids, and I got one from Moffitt in Tampa. Two months after the passing, to the husband of the patient. And those cards were filled with testimonials of what Kelly was to those people. Who does that? These are oncology units. They see people die all the time. Who does that? And you know what? There were statements like, Kelly was the all-time best patient we ever had. Kelly encouraged me with this statement. Kelly was amazing. So I have a, I have a, a trunk that's filled with cards and letters. Um, wouldn't be able to contain the emails that we got or all of the responses. I did, we did actually print a book of all the responses that we had from Care for Kelly Page. And uh, I just, you, you, you can't, you can't keep up with it, really. As much as I appreciate everything that was written, I'm, I'm gonna be reading some of this stuff for years. And as we did that, um, as I started receiving all of this stuff, there are people from all over the world, places that Kelly had never been. So Philippines, Japan, India, Turkey, Norway, England, all over South America, all over the U.S. And these are people that had read um, the Care for Kelly page. These are people that knew other missionaries that knew us. These are people that knew Brazilians who were across the world. And um, we began to see that compassion really had an impact on the lives of people. And even if you're in the midst of trials and suffering and pain, you can use your compassion in the lives of, of other people and not necessarily be self-focused. So those are the two pillars. And uh, it's kind of funny, after hearing this, I'm going to go back here. Um, a friend of mine looked at me and says, Dan... That's as simple as Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean by that? He said, well, remember the book, The Bernstein Bears? That's a Dr. Seuss book, too. The Bernstein Bears, Inside, Outside, Upside Down? I said, sure, I remember that. Well, it's, it's like that. Inside, Outside, Upside Down. I'm like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> he said, you know what? It's gratitude inside. Compassion outside so that we might turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ with our joy. I couldn't have said it any better. Gratitude on the inside, compassion on the outside, so that we can turn the world upside down. The virtues of our Christian faith and gratitude and compassion go a long way in our message to the world. It is good news. And so Kelly passed away in February 27th, 2021. 
The big question for me is, okay, what am I doing? And I had to consider a lot of options. Um, I got some invitations to do some things that were just way, either I thought way out of my league, um, to preside a mission board and to uh, direct another youth camp and um, church planting opportunities. And I was still the regional director for CCAM. And so I decided I need to pursue this because God placed this on our heart at one point. What does God want me to do with this? So I traveled to Costa Rica and I traveled to Nicaragua and I visited some of the missionaries there and found out that um, there is a component that's missing here. I can't do due diligence. I cannot properly administrate a group of missionaries without my wife by my side. I cannot... um, uh, give coverage to them. I would try to meet with some of the single ladies and I had to meet on the porch of other missionaries. And something was missing. And then the organizational element that Kelly brought to, to the table was also missing. I said, I, I can't do this. I believe God is, and even though ABW wanted me to stay with it, and our missionaries all said, no, Dan, we need you here, please stay. Uh, I did not feel at ease with that. And little by little, through those months in 2021, God began to work in my heart and began to have me consider a return to Brazil. Not because that was my familiarity. Not because that is what I had always done. But God began to multiply the dream and the mission and calling that I had for that country more than it ever was before. He probably expanded it tenfold for me. And as I began to consider the return, I knew that there were some things that right off the bat I needed to take care of. And trust me, the bureaucratic work of taking care of properties that are owned by two people is not easy in Brazil. I am uh, finally uh, able to finish what they call the inventory process so that I can sell our home. And we're already almost in 2023. And we've had to have a lawyer involved, and it, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching to have to go through that when you're also going through grief. So I knew that I really needed to rest my mind and set my mind uh, free from uh, too many different relationships, people, and I wanted to work a lot on like just physical activity. So the first thing that I started focusing on was camp projects. And this is the retaining wall at camp. Uh, The city hall there decided to cobblestone our road, but they didn't build any retaining walls, and they had no plans whatsoever of building any kind of wall for us. So we began losing property to erosion, and we were losing half the side of our hill. So we began building this wall. We still lack 115 linear meters of granite, stone, rock uh, retaining wall. And... uh, By God's grace, we've been able to build uh, a little over half of what is needed. And we still have the 115 uh, meters left to go. But uh, (coughs) this is is a huge project. You can see as it goes down the hill, where the tree line there is on the left is where where we still have to build a retaining wall because we're losing property to erosion. And we also uh, remodeled our whole pool. Doesn't that look nice? That was in January, by the way. You guys want to come down in January with a short-term team and help us out at camp in Brazil? 
come on down, jump in our pool in January, okay? 90 degree weather, it's beautiful. But this was a big job. Um, we leveled the pool all at one level because back in 2011 we had a drowning in the pool there and we never wanted to see that happen again. And as we're digging up the patio and changing the patio, we found out that all of the PVC pipes had iron metal connectors. And so it just looked like everything was clogged up. We ended up changing the whole filter system, the whole pump, um, the whole patio. Everything on the pool was changed. And so this was a huge job in, uh, last year, 2000, uh, this year, actually 2002. So this is my staff, and this is what charges me up. So after all the camp projects are done, you know, uh, uh, building is a necessary evil for camp uh, directorship. Uh, it's not something I enjoy doing. What I really thrive on is being able to pour my life into young people, young adults. And so we have two seasons a year, January and July. And every year I have an opportunity twice to have one-on-one uh, -on -one training with a lot of these people and group training as well. And so I just want to, I want to just show, uh, I want you to meet our paradise staff, okay? So here we go. Uh-oh. Is that sound coming out? So this staff, back in January, uh, we were carrying on through camp, and they had finally opened things up after COVID, and we were so excited about being able to run camp again after uh, two and a half years of no camp ministry at all. And uh, we got to week two, and I began to see um, some people getting a little lethargic and fatigued, and my worship leader went in and got a COVID test and tested positive for covid and within uh, three days, I had 21 of my staffers who had caught COVID. And we became a super spreader. We had to cancel week three, which is adventure week. It's my favorite week. And uh, so January season was very difficult for us, even though it was a great season. This picture now is of our July season, and we were COVID-free. No cases. We're so excited about that. And you know what was amazing about this season is um, we start getting, by Tuesday noon, I know how many of these kids are declared unbelievers. I have my counselors do one-on-ones with them, and they're talking with the kids and talking about their faith. And by Tuesday, I have this list that I usually pray through during the week. And of all these kids here, 41% of them were unbelievers. Stated unbelievers. There's probably more. And we're looking at this golden opportunity because normally we have about 20% of our kids are unsaved that come to camp. Now we have 41%. What are we going to do with this? Is this just because of the effects of COVID and people have been gone so long and they've got new friends coming in? And we began to see God work in the lives of these kids in July. And 20% of them 
turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. 20% of the total group, not of the 41%. And so half of those turn their lives over to Jesus. And, and most of those want to come back to camp for the next season in January. So we're excited about that. And like I said, uh, Pastor John, Pastor Preston, if you ever want to come down, uh, please come down with a team and, and we will host you. Uh, we had the Forest Hills team that went down this last year. And it was exciting because uh, this was the first time I hosted a group without Kelly. And I actually saw that I could do it. You know? um, but they came down with uh, 20 people. And they helped with crafts and they helped with dishwashing and pool time. Well, on the second week during teen week, the teens that are in that group become campers. So they're fully immersed in Brazilian camp, in Portuguese, and they're split up in rooms. They're all alone, uh, each person to a room. And uh, they were terrified by that, but it worked out really well. And they built lasting relationships, and they were a great part of uh, uh, this last season. So my, my thanks go to Four Steels. Uh, let me go through some of these really quickly. Good Soil Ministries is the other area that I'm heavily involved in. Uh, I teach evangelism and discipleship courses all over Brazil. Uh, before we had actually concluded in 2019, uh, we had taught over 2,000 Brazilian leaders in good soil seminars all over the country. And uh, I'm very passionate about it. This has given us opportunity to be able to expand into other countries, especially Lusophonic countries. Lusophonic meaning other Portuguese-speaking countries. So countries like uh, Portugal and Cape Verde and Angola and Mozambique and East Timor and Madeira, and uh, there's, there's all these different places where we are able to use an expansion of good soil ministries uh, using Brazilian missionaries. Uh, right now we have needs for more facilitators and product developers. You've got the list there. Um, but it's, it's something that I'm passionate about, and I'm now back to being not the director of Good Soil Brazil, but the interim director until they find somebody else because I don't want to direct another ministry. What I would like to do is be able to facilitate uh, all of the training and be a training coordinator for them. So uh, this is when we began to introduce the Roots of Faith, which is uh, it's a 40-hour seminar, a week-long seminar that we teach on Old Testament and New Testament. This was down in southern Brazil. And uh, let me just share one more real quick story. Um, had an opportunity, as I said, to go around the world teaching. And in February of this past year, uh, we were invited to go to Uganda and teach in English. And so this was our teaching team. Um, my good friend Caleb there and myself and Randy Southwell and Dr. Dave Drollinger, from, who used to teach at Cedarville College. Uh, we're all part of this team in Uganda. And we had 42 um, Ugandan pastors there. And we were way up in the northern town and district of Moyo. Uh, we are only a kilometer away from the South Sudan border where all the unrest and the, and the civil war is going on. We're in the middle of nowhere. And we had taught day one, uh, Monday, Tuesday. Dr. Dave Drollinger is almost 80 years old, I think. And so he was really struggling with the heat and with the, with the heavy teaching duties and I'm thinking, boy, are we going to make it through this whole week, you know? We taught Monday and Tuesday, eight hours a day. And then on Tuesday night, um, 6.30 in the evening, I had this young intern come, and, Mr. Dan, Mr. Dan, come, 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 come quickly. 
And I ran with him, and I found my colleague, Randy Southwell, uh, on the floor. And just a deep sweat uh, and chest pains and just holding his chest. And, and what do you do? You're in the middle of nowhere. Obviously, he was having a heart attack. I've had a heart attack. I know what that looks like. And we had nothing. I, I had some baby aspirin that I had. I got five of them, crushed them, and put them under his tongue. That's all we had. And we put him to bed, and, and we tried to get a hold of uh, flights. And uh, we got an MAF pilot that we could come the next day at 10 o'clock. This started at 6.30 in the evening. So we were up with him all night long, um, watching over Randy. Uh, we had to get on the Land Rover and go over very, very bumpy dirt, or dirt and rock roads to get to this little landing strip that the MAF pilot uh, landed on. We had another two-and-a-half-hour flight we flew down to Kampala, and in Kampala, we couldn't fly into the city because we weren't in a jetliner. We had a small plane, so we had to drive another hour into Kampala by way of ambulance. And so this is Randy in the ambulance, and I sat back there with him, and I'm watching through the front windshield, and this guy is driving down a four-lane highway the wrong way. <laughs> You're just seeing cars part way, you know, in front of you. It's just doing this, and I'm like... Oh, Lord, please, hold us through this. And at one point, um, the IV that's over in his left arm there, it popped out of his arm, and it's just kind of flying around the, the cabin there. And I never heard somebody take the Lord's vein so much as that nurse, that uh, Ugandan nurse that was there. Um, but we finally got him to a hospital, and 24 hours later, Randy was being treated in the hospital. And we ended up being there. I was in ICU uh, not in ICU, but I was in another room three days uh, in recovery. And thank goodness, uh, thank the Lord, Randy has recovered from that. And he is back uh, to doing his regular ministries, teaching good soil. <coughs> I also had an opportunity to have input in the life of a young man named Jaden from our home church. 18-year-old, he spent 10 weeks with me in Brazil. And... When the church first called me, they said, Dan, we have this young gentleman that um, we're doing an internship with. Uh, you need to understand that our church's youth group is 350 large. It's a lot of kids. They chose one kid, and so he's got to be special. And they said, after our internship with him, we want him to have an international experience, and he has chosen you. He says, I don't know him. What do you mean he's chosen me? And they wanted him to send him down for six months. I said, no, I can't do that. Um, how about 10 weeks? <clears throat> okay. He learned Portuguese, got online, two online teachers, learned Portuguese uh, sufficiently enough to communicate. In fact, when he was at camp, uh, he would come to me and start talking in Portuguese. And I look at him and say, okay, you're really gonna, you want to do this? <laughs> so I'd start talking real fast back to him, you know, and he just, he didn't stutter. He just kept talking to me in Portuguese. Uh, just a delight. I've, I've never seen a young man of 18 years old who loved the Lord as much as Jaden. He was special. He'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, have his devotions, pray. Uh, occasionally on evenings, he said, Dan, can we have a prayer meeting together? And sure, like two, three times a week. And we'd pray for an hour. <laughs> what young man does that? Doesn't play any video games, doesn't watch Netflix. He listens to podcasts of theology and Bible, and amazing worker. If I had a third daughter, he'd be the man. 
Um, but this was a delight, and I, I say this because it was such a heart encouragement to me. It was an amazing encouragement to have him uh, there with me. And uh, just uh, another new thing that we're starting now, because I have, I'm passionate about this age bracket of 18 through 29-year-olds, what I have found out is that uh, the, the statistic today is 66% of the age bracket of 18 through 24 are walking away from their faith completely. And you may have faced that here. We all are all over the world. And I have a very deep concern for this age bracket. And so we began developing something. I have a staff of 15 people that are directly involved in off-site camping. Instead of going to Camp Paradise, we find somewhere else uh, in our state, and we take them to do off-site camping. And uh, we began to teach them how to process their life with a world and life view, and a biblical world and life view. And so we, we found some cool places. Uh, my battery is almost out. Um, this cave was one of the places where we're going to do one night stay. Um, just this, this is a valley that uh, is just beautiful where uh, we plan on doing a lot more of these. At least twice a year we'll be doing these kind of retreats with our people and then engaging in them in mentorship and discipleship throughout um, the rest of the year. And then one last picture, and this is my sunset picture. It doesn't, it doesn't look like a sunset at all. This was our first church plant. And last month they had a baptism and they had 14 people involved. And I got to sit and just watch. And our two pastors, Claudio Alejandro, are in that picture. And um, it's such a delight to see uh, our churches come to faith and come to maturity. Um, Koinonia Baptist Church has now planted three daughter works. And one of those daughter works is now planting a granddaughter work. So we just praise God and thank you for your faithfulness and just praying us through so much of this. Uh, you've been aware and you've been praying for Koinonia Baptist Church ever since 1994. And it's, it's, it's God's miracle to see this happening. And I just praise God for, for their growth through all of this.